0: Would we be content with anything less than praying and working and longing to see every disciple making disciples and every church multiplying? And and not to think, well, we can't do that because of this or that. Well, if, if our brothers and sisters are doing it in these ways around the world with no resources, no technology, and just the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God, that's apparently enough to spread the gospel of God.
1: This weekend on the Songtime broadcast, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke as David Platt takes us to chapter 5 and shows us the story of Jesus' initial calling of his disciples, telling them to leave their nets and their, their careers behind, and he tells them he's going to make them catchers of men. Stay tuned for that message, but first we'll be talking about how to reinvigorate our prayer life by learning from those who have already gone before us, the Puritans. Tim Chester joins us, and the many voices come together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. How is your prayer life? Is it red hot? Are you passionate? Are you intentional in your prayers? Are you seeing fruit as you are talking to God and bringing your burdens and laying them at His feet? I'll be honest that I have had seasons where I've been really on fire, and other times I feel like I've been saying the same prayers over and over again, and I just haven't been passionate about them. I've kind of lost interest. My fire has fizzled out a little bit. Maybe you can resonate with that. Well, our guest today is Tim Chester, and he has compiled a book of prayers from Puritans called Into His Presence. And in his book, he He has all of these prayers that are written out. And Tim, I gotta tell you, I did not grow up in a church tradition where prayers were written down or we read other people's prayers. It wasn't part of our practice in our worship service. And for some of our listeners, they probably are thinking the same thing. It's a little weird, a little awkward to read somebody else's prayers. Um, that can be a little bit of a difficulty, but I think that throughout the years I've learned that it's actually a really great benefit to read other people's prayers. What can you tell us about this book and what you put together and the importance of, of reading somebody else's prayers?
2: Yes, I suppose there are two ways of looking at this. I mean, I'm I'm all for um, extemporary prayer—the prayer that you kind of make up as you go along, as it were. Just part of that natural relationship and conversation with with God that we're able to have now through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's that's the mainstay of 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 the life of our church and so on. Uh, but I do think there is something really beneficial in reading and indeed using prayers from the past. One one of that is. Prayers are a kind of record of a person's relationship with God. And so we are learning from and um, digging into how different generations, different people have engaged with God. So we have theology, and that's that's really important, and we can read the theology of the past uh, and uh, use that to shape and inform our understanding today. But Things like written prayers offer us a kind of window onto the spirituality of the past, how they actually lived their relationship with God. In a sense, theology is the theory, uh, uh, foundational as that is. Uh, Prayers are the kind of lived experience of that. This is what their theology looked like when they went and stood before their God. Mm. And I think so prayers are, in a sense, obviously, they embody the theology of the Puritans, in this case, uh, but but it's a little bit more than that. It's it's not just their theology of God. It's their experience of God that we're encountering in prayers.
1: Now, I, I have to admit, I love to listen to people pray. I feel like there's, there's kind of you're having this window into their conversation with God. It's almost like you're able to really get to know them really well. You know, I, I say this with pastors all the time. Uh, listen to your congregants pray. Like spend some time with them. Let them pray. It's an insight into their walk with Christ or walk with God. It really is a beautiful picture. But with that being said, I've I found it difficult to read people's prayers throughout the years. I'm getting to that place now, and in your book is definitely a great resource. But reading people's prayers is is really a little bit of a challenge, and I'm sure some of our listeners feel the same way. What's the value of of reading these prayers and not having it in this sort of intimate moment where you're there sharing with them in their prayer?
2: Well, think of it like this. One of the things we sometimes say is you can tell the kind of denominational or background or the kind of church tradition that someone comes from when Mm -hmm. they pray. And that's because the normal way most of us learn to pray is actually by imitating the people around us. We, we tend to pray like the way, in the sa- using the same phrases and language and emphases and styles of the, the way the people around us pray. The way someone in a kind of reformed church prays is you kind of know what you're going to expect. And then someone in a Pentecostal church will pray quite differently from that because that's what they're used to doing. Well, when we pray from the Puritans, what we're saying is, that's great, that, that, that kind of imitation, that copying, that's all part, actually, of the way Christian discipleship works. But of course, with that, we're then limited to the kind of people around us, whoever they may be. What we do when we read prayers from the past is allow, is in a sense, allow that same process to happen. But now we're drawing on this wider, deeper perhaps, uh, resource of prayer. Mm. There is something else I want to say. A couple of years ago, I had something of an emotional breakdown. I had a very difficult period in my life and, um, and whenever I sat down to pray, my head was all over the place. I just couldn't turn off the kind of internal conversations that were going on in my brain. And I found it abs- an absolute lifeline, actually, to be able to pray other people's prayer, to use a bit of liturgy, to use some prayers from the, fa- from the past. So that, in a sense, I was forced to articulate my prayers to God using the words of other people. But it just, in a sense, it just anchored my thoughts at a time when my thoughts were all over the place. Mm.
1: I think in the general consensus where the kind of background, you talk about backgrounds that we came up in and and we didn't have written prayers as part of our practice. And yet, if anyone came from the same background that I came from, if you were watching uh, the Queen's funeral and you saw these (laughs) recorded prayers, it really didn't, it took away the sort of stodginess of it and it really brought some elements of, of Beauty and prestige to written prayers.
2: Yes, maybe a way of thinking about it. There's, there's a joke that uh, I once heard where uh, the, uh, somebody thought they would uh, they would prepare the first half of their sermon, and then they would just rely on the Holy Spirit for the second half. And then they meet an old lady at the door, and she says, "Oh, you know, that was an interesting sermon. The two heart, two heart, I think like in two halves." And the 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 preacher explained, you know, how he would pre- carefully prepared the first half and then he'd allow the spirit to move through him in the second half. And the old lady says, well, that's a, that's a funny thing because it turns out you're a better preacher than the Holy Spirit, you know. <laughs> which which what, what she was sort of saying is, well, I mean, she was just reflecting on the sermon, but because the point is the Holy Spirit works actually through the preparation as well as in the moment when the preaching happens. And uh, I think there's a little bit of that with our praying, that um of course we can speak to god whenever we like and in fact you know there's no our prayers do not have to be eloquent they can be faltering and muddled and all messed up because that that's not their criteria the criteria by which they're valued is it's the blood of Christ. We come in the name of Christ, and that's what makes our prayers great prayers and prayers that the Father loves to hear. So, of course, they can be a mess and all over the place. But actually, the preparing of a prayer or the using of a prayer from from another century does not mean the Spirit somehow is switched off and we switch some other switch on. Actually, the Spirit is working through, through the history of the Church, through our own experience, through us sitting down and writing it. And I think it does, particularly for those kind of occasions, it does it does allow us to articulate truth clearly and beautifully and in a way that's compelling to those who are praying along with us.
1: We've been talking with Tim Chester about his excellent book. It's called Into His Presence Praying with the Puritans, a, an excellent compilation of all of these prayers from the Puritans that we can learn from that can reinvigorate our own prayer lives and also help us connect with the true heart of God as as they were. They have proven themselves with time and history that they were committed followers of Jesus, denying themselves and taking up the cross daily and following him. We can learn from their example. If you'd like to find out more information about Tim Chester and his book, Into His Presence, give us a call, 508-362-7070, or head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be talking about the call of Jesus on his disciples to to leave their nets behind, to leave their careers, as we talk about the example here in Luke chapter 5 of of Simon Peter, of James and John, and he tells them to come and follow him. This is a reflection of this sold-out commitment, denying themselves, taking the cross, and following him. But then Jesus makes this statement that where they were fishermen— Jesus is going to make them (laughs) catchermen. It's a little bit of a play on words, but as they caught all of these fish, more than they could actually handle, more than they could even hold in their boats, and the nets were breaking, and Jesus says, "'Just as I've made you fruitful here, I'm going to make you fruitful as I send you out into all the world, and you will make disciples. You will be catchers of men. Come and learn from me.'" We can be encouraged by this, and uh, this report from David Platt, as he tells us about what's actually happening in the world around us today. A powerful message that he preached from this text. He gives us some insight on how the gospel message carried forth is actually seen many souls one for the kingdom of God. Here's David Platt.
0: Bihar is a state in India that's about the size of Tennessee. The only difference between Bihar and Tennessee is, uh, Tennessee has 6 million people, Bihar has 100 million people. And this state is one of the most spiritually and physically impoverished places on the planet. Physically poor, millions upon millions of people living in desperate poverty, struggling for food and and water. So physical poverty on top of spiritual poverty. The church partners we work with in Bihar estimate that about 0.1% of Bihar is evangelical Christian, gospel believing Christians. So so 0.1% the area we were in in Bihar, the, the death region in this area was about 5000 people per day. And so you put that together with the number of Christians, you realize that in this region where we were in Every day approximately 4,995 people are plunging into an eternal hell. And most of them have never heard the gospel. And so we were, we were working with, with these churches and you would expect in that kind of setting to just be just discouraged by all of the spiritual and physical oppression around you. But on the contrary, we were very encouraged. So let me tell you, one story of two brothers, Anil and Hari. Anil is a school superintendent, Hari is a chicken farmer, and both of these brothers are active in in church, wanting to lead people to Christ, and for years have been doing that, and for years have been seeing no fruit from that. Just wall after wall after wall among predominantly Hindu, Bihar, India. And so they went to some training that we've worked with some churches in providing on disciple making and multiplying churches. And at this training they were encouraged to find a totally unreached village, so a village where there's no Christian, no churches. Go into the village. First people to come up to you and talk to you, just say to them, hi, hey, we're here in the name of Jesus and we would like to pray for your village. And Neil and Hari looked at each other and said, this will never work. But then they looked at each other and said, well, nothing we've done over years has worked, so we might as well try it. And so they go into this village. They're almost through the village without anybody even talking to them until they get near the end of the village. And this man comes up to them and starts a conversation with them. And he says, what are you doing here? And so they look back at this man and they say, well, we're here in the name of Jesus. And before they got the rest of their prescripted line out, this man stops them and says, Jesus, I've heard a little bit about him. Can you tell me more? And so Neil and Harry look at each other and say, uh, yes, we can tell you more. And so the man says, well, I don't want you just to tell me. I want you to tell my friends and family if that would be okay. And Neil and Hari said, that would be okay. And so Neil and Hari follow this man to this man's home. This man goes and gets about 15 or 20 members of his family and their friends and brings them into this home. They cram in and they say, now, will you tell us about this Jesus? And Neil and Hari share the gospel with them. And long story short, over the next two or three weeks, about 20 people in that village repent and believe in Christ so after generations of not hearing the gospel, at that moment that week too when the gospel is shared for the first time they respond, the whole picture of the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, they're ready to hear the gospel and so so they share the gospel and then once these people come to Christ they say, now we want to teach you, equip you to go in other villages and do the same thing that we've done in your village. And so that's what they did. And they started sending them out. This was three years ago. Three years later, three years later, between Anil and Hari, their work starting in that one village, approximately 350 different churches and 350 different villages have begun. And, and I sat there. Yeah, give glory. And, and I, I get a little cynical when I hear numbers like that in India or even in other places. And there's there's a variety of reasons I get cynical about that, but we worshiped with these churches. Not all of them, but they've got a grid through which they're looking at church, health of church, measuring health of church, helping these churches grow, and, and 350 different churches. And so we were sitting there one day, and, and my, my mentor in ministry was, was with me, and he said, David, this is the closest thing I've ever seen to what we read about in the book of Acts. Like, Just the gospel is multiplying. And so we're, we're sitting there with the Neil and Hari, and we say, what happened? I mean, you guys have been doing ministry for years, and up until three years ago, nothing was happening. Three years later, you start sharing in these ways, and all of a sudden, these people are coming to Christ. You've seen all this. What's the difference? And both these guys just throw their hands up in the air, and they say, we don't know. Only God could have done this. And as soon as they said that, my heart left inside. I thought, I want to, I want to be a part of disciples being made and churches being multiplied all over the place in a way for which only God can get the glory. In a way for which a a particular pastor, a particular movement, a particular method, whatever, cannot get the glory. In a way for which only God can get the glory. And it's not just parts of India. it's, It's parts of Cuba. Last time I was in Cuba. You, you look on the outside of Cuba, you hardly see the church at all. You don't see the church in Cuba until you get on the inside and you get to know the people. And the people in Cuba. We were with one particular church. This church had, and, and, and basically the, the way the pastor described it to me, he said, with, with communism, he said, our goal and everything is just to keep your head below the ceiling. You lift your head up by the ceiling, it gets... Cut off. I don't know if he meant that figuratively or literally or what, but yeah, that was his philosophy. And so he said, "That's what we do as a church. We just stay low, so you don't see all the buildings or programs or stuff like that. All you, you just stay, we just stay low." And so this one church that this guy pastored had planted sixty different churches. And then we went to one of these other churches, and, and th- that had been planted by this one. And this church had planted twenty-five other churches. So they're they're multiplying churches. And I I pulled this pastor aside. And I said, "What are you guys doing? How are you guys multiplying churches like this?" He, He looked back at me and said, we're making disciples. I said, let me write that down. That's good. Make disciples. We should do that. And and, and this guy, he's a fireball. He's an older brother. Uh, I mean, he was brought before the Communist Council in his community. Brought before this Communist Council... And he brings with him, and this older brother, he brings with him before before this communist council a rock, and he places it on the table in front of him. And the communist council is like, why'd you bring the rock in? And he said, I just want you all to know that if you try to stop me from proclaiming the gospel, the rocks will cry out about the glory of Christ instead. (laughs) They they thought the guy was nuts, and they let him go. Like, this is... (laughs) This is the kind of boldness there is. And all right, we're going to make disciples. We're going to multiply churches. So so I hear stories about this. And I see around brothers and sisters in India or Cuba or China. We're seeing this or that. And I don't want to paint a glamorous picture. It's not that it's that way everywhere else in the world. But this is happening. In different. Don't we want to be a part of that here? And isn't this God's design for our lives, for the life of every disciple of Jesus Hasn't He created us, saved us, commissioned us, commanded us to make disciples of Jesus? And isn't it God's design for His church to be spreading, to be multiplying? And so why would we be content with anything less than than praying and working and longing to see every disciple making disciples and every church multiplying churches? And, and, and not to think, well, we can't do that because of this or that. Well, if, if our brothers and sisters are doing it in these ways around the world with no resources, no technology, I mean, just the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God, that's apparently enough to spread the gospel of God. And we've got these things, Word, Spirit, people. Put them together. There's power for multiplication.
1: I grew up, many of you already know this, in the Chicago area. I was a city kid, and therefore I didn't have a lot of experience when it came to outdoors-type things. But every year, we used to go and visit my grandpa up in Tennessee in Shady Valley, a small little community surrounded by mountains, and my grandpa had a little pond in his backyard, a stocked pond where we used to go fishing in that all of the time. And I got to tell you, that is luxurious fishing. When you stock your own pond and it's a small little pond, you're guaranteed to catch something. It's not like some of the big lakes or even going out in the ocean. I know a lot of my friends enjoy fishing and in particular sportsmen, I get it, you can go out and you can get, spend an entire day out in the water and not catch anything and still and still get something out of it. Well, for me, I, I didn't enjoy fishing unless I was catching something. I didn't want to be a fisherman. I wanted to be a catcherman. And I think that's what's so unique about this story here in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus tells his disciples after catching all of those fish, He says, I'm going to make you catchers of men. There's a big difference between fishing and catching, and Jesus is telling them that they will be effective. If they commit themselves to Jesus, if they learn from him, and they follow Jesus, they will be effective at winning other people to a knowledge of who Jesus is. If that same rule applies for you and for me, the same call is placed on our lives as as we hear this reminder that we want to follow Jesus, we deny ourselves and we take up our cross daily and follow him, then he will also make you and I catchers of men. Maybe you've been discouraged in your attempts to be a witness. Let me encourage you today and challenge you to be faithful at proclaiming your faith. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And as we share our faith, as we re repeat the gospel, repeat what we have been learning in God's word, then we will be effective. Whether we see that fruit or not, God is always going to use that in the advancing of His Kingdom. And we can see the the value and the benefit. I know that people have been saying that uh, this area of New England and the Northeast, that it is an unchurched area and the mission work is, is failing all around us. But I am convinced that what our neighbors need is a convincing presentation of the gospel. Uh, They need to be called to repentance as Jesus called us to repentance. They need to see that as we hope in Christ. And I believe that you can be an effective witness as you take the call of Christ. You deny yourself and you take up your cross daily and follow him. He will make you fruitful and he will make you a catcher of men, not just a fisherman. If we've been able to bless you, I hope to hear from you. Write to us, tell us your story, tell us your experiences. Write to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630. Or you can give us a call, it's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or you can look us up on social media. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 9:23 and 24. Hear the words of Jesus. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it.